Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. So, okay, but like, <laughs> the audiobook that I read, or well, that I listened to today, the clown person who was reading sounded like Jimmy Stewart. They sounded <laughs> like Jimmy Stewart back from the from the dead and he was like oh my sister jane go to it and like i just and that's probably not a great jimmy stewart impression but like i mean it's not a bad one Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. Yeah, we're back. We're here each each time that we do this. We discuss a different play. Sometimes Shakespeare, sometimes not. And this week it's not, but also it's a one on one level episode. Yeah, that's introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some cool stuff that you're going to get nowhere else, namely our opinions. You know, really. And, you know, some William Rowley trivia, perhaps, today? I'm not sure we've ever talked about major themes. I mean, we do. We don't. We just do don't we? say, okay. this is a major theme. Mm. You know, but we talk about the stuff that's percolating in the play. That's a theme. Okay, you're, you're right. <laughs> we, can, we can, in fact, just move on to Happy Hour, mm-hmm. which yeah. goes cling cling. Uh, it's, you know, stuff that we're into and sometimes it's like serious stuff and sometimes it's fluff and looks like today it's fluff. (laughs) Yeah. Well, kind of sort of fluff. I mean, okay. So the thing I want to promote is the thing that's happening this weekend in my town right now. Um, so plan for next year. (laughs) No, but okay. But the reason I like it. Okay. Yeah. 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 So the reason I like it. Yeah. Okay, so this thing that's happening, it's the first time that it's been back in three years. Uh, it's the Queen City Mischief and Magic Festival, um, which is a Harry Potter festival by any other name, but, like, they can't call it that officially, otherwise Warner Brothers would, like, crack down. Um, and and despite the, uh, you know, the J.K. Rowling ruining her own legacy problem by being a turf and worse... Um, you know, the entire town of Stanton, Virginia comes together, all the business, you know, like, like so many, most of the downtown business owners um, and nonprofits from all over the, the region, everybody comes together really to support small business. That's really what this is for. Like, that's where the whole festival came from. Is it, it was, really? Yeah. It, yes. Sarah Lynch, the owner of the huh. Baja Bean. Uh, in 2016, got some folks together and was like, you know what? September is like a really dead season in the town because people are going back to school. You know, the tourist levels really drop. And like, and also like she's a mega fan of Harry Potter. But but like mm-hmm. the whole genesis of the festival was to support and drive business to small businesses downtown. Um, okay. Yeah. I dig it. And yeah. And, and it has turned into a mob scene. Like the, the town doubles in size you know there are 20,000 extra people in town (laughs) this weekend 
Um, and, you know, there's a lot of Harry Potter cosplay, and it's just the whole town turns into Diagon Alley, basically. Um, and everybody gets together for love of literature and Harry Potter and all things magical and wonderful. And, like, there's just a lot of, especially this year, because it's the first time back in person since 2019, like, there's just a lot of joy and, like, relief at being back. Um, but it's it's super, super great uh, for, for the businesses and restaurants downtown. Um, and ASC always participates. We always do, like, a little wand dueling and dual ball dancing workshops and you know um, we were doing uh costume sales you know pull we pulled stuff from our costume stock and and put it for sale things like that um that help us but also like everybody's directing traffic towards one another um so so it's it's a really great thing for the town um and this is all to say really support small local businesses you know um but this is just like one big festival that does that every year and I, I love it, despite the traffic problems that it causes and, <laughs> and the fact that many, many locals just, like, board up their windows and hunker down and <laughs> stay away for the weekend. Um, I, yeah, that's, that's, I, it's my happy hour because it, it brings joy and, you know, uh, much needed publicity and prosperity to a small town and a bunch of small businesses. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's my happy hour. Support small businesses. All right. Um. So over the summer, I read a book. Well, I read a lot of books over the summer, like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my dear friend, Molly Ceramet, shout out to Molly, frequent flyer on the pod, um, in like July-ish, recommended The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. And this book fucked me all the way up. Ooh. It is so good. And completely unlike anything else I've ever read ever um I don't know how to describe it adequately in a way that won't completely spoil it Mm. um but the the like little tagline on the internet um says the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle is a breathlessly addictive mystery that follows one man's race to find a killer with an astonishing twist that means nothing and no one are quite what they seem. And that is accurate. <laughs> yeah. it's So it's like um, murder mystery in an English country pile in, you know, the vague late 19th, early 20th century time-ish. Um, and it, it's, oh, it's so good. It's so good and the the skill that it takes to write a narrative that the reader can hang on to when the narrator themselves themselves uh does not know what the narrative is is mind-boggling it's so good it's so just pick it up pick it up read it okay. thank me later uh it's by a guy called Stuart turton t-u-r-t-o-n Stuart turton um okay. it's oh god just yeah uh i legitimately like i haven't been able to stop thinking about it um and basically like every book that molly has ever recommended to me has been a freaking banger um but this one 
has has really just stuck with me in in a way it's just uh, yeah i can't mm-hmm. I, I can't and like it's, it's just so good it's so good so if uh you know if if murder mysteries in an english country pile are your thing um or even if it's not your thing frankly <laughs> give it a try give it a try <laughs> give it a try yeah <gasps> so good anyway that's where we're at cool what happens next uh it's time to meet the contemporary william rowley have yeah. we talked about this guy before no uh we have very very unlikely okay great well it's time to meet william rowley ta-da uh okay william rowley um was born around 1585 died in 1626. He was an English Jacobean dramatist, um, best known for works that he wrote in collaboration with other writers. He specialized in playing clown characters himself um, as an actor playwright. That is fun. Um, uh, It is thought that he uh, wrote fat clown roles into basically every play that he collaborated on or wrote, um, including The Birth of Merlin, the, the unnamed clown in the birth of merlin uh is thought to be played by rowley so he just like he just wrote himself into all the shows as a fat clown i love that yeah that's kind of funny hashtag Uh, goals yeah that's pretty great he played the fat bishop in thomas middleton's a game at chess plump (sighs) porridge in thomas middleton's inner temple mask um he wrote uh jake's in all's lost by lust Mm. for himself um Bustofa, Bustofa, uh, in the Maid in the Mill, um, which is a collaboration with John Fletcher. He so yeah, he um, he really liked playing clowns and he liked writing himself into shows as clowns. Apparently, he started his playwriting career working for Queen Anne's Men at the Red Bull Theater in 1623. Rowley left his company uh, and joined the highly successful King's Men at the Globe um, for the last three years of his life. So that's, uh, in case you don't remember, The King's Men was Shakespeare's former company. But of course, in 1623, Shakespeare was already dead. Mm -hmm. um, And his buddies in The King's Men were putting together the first folio and publishing it that year. uh, Just to place things on a timeline that you might recognize. His stay with the troupe was eventful. In 1624, he was embroiled in both the Game at Chess controversy in August and the Spanish Viceroy affair in, in December. Whatever the hell those are. Uh, the the Spanish thing is the thing uh, that Game of Chess is written about. Oh, okay. He did not restrict his playwriting efforts to the company to which he was committed as an actor. Um, in 1624, he was a member as a member of the King's Men, but also he did a game of chess for a for the Red Bull Theater, which was uh, with a different company. So let's see. He wrote, among other things, or co-wrote, uh, ooh, yeah, some titles we have also talked about on this pod. Um, this play, The Birth of Merlin, he wrote, co-wrote with Thomas Middleton, The Changeling. Um, oh, we so yeah, we would have, we definitely would have talked about him when we did our Changeling episode. Oh, well, okay, but that was like <laughs> okay. years ago, it was ages ago. Yeah. He uh, co-wrote A Cure for a Cuckold with John Webster. Um, another Tommy Mids collab called A Fair Quarrel. 
He wrote Fortune by Land and Sea with Thomas Haywood, The Maid in the Mill with John Fletcher. Uh, let's see. Dur, dur, dur. Shoemaker and a Gentleman. Apparently that was himself. The Spanish Gypsy. Uh, that page attributes it to Rowley and Middleton. But other f- people say it's Ford and Decker. Um, some folks actually misattribute The Birth of Merlin to partially being a Shakespeare collab as well. Yeah, I think I'm going to talk gonna, about that. Yep, yeah, you're going to get into yeah. that later. I saw your notes. This um, is like word for word what we have in the changeling notes is it okay well that's that's cool um he also co-wrote the witch of edmonton which i do hope we do on the pod at some point and i'm not giving this is not an exhaustive list of his work this is just titles folks might know um and the world tossed at tennis again with thomas middleton so it looks like he liked to collab with tommy mids i mean who didn't that guy seems like a delight serious yes (laughs) <laughs> I would collaborate with Thomas Middleton. Um, yeah. Girl. So <laughs> and that is not a euphemism, but it could be. Mm. Um, uh, so William Rowley. That is your life. Doop, doop, doop. We have met the contemporary. Ta-da. Um, it's time for our five word unhelpful title. Mine is it might be state propaganda. Mine is this play isn't about Merlin. Word. True. Both kind of unhelpful, but I think also accurate. Yeah. Well, that's our brand. Unhelpful, but accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, let's talk Dramatis Personae. Yeah. Okay. There's so a lot we're of people gonna... in this play. Yes. <laughs> so many people. Yeah. Well, it's an English history play, so big cast. Yeah. Um. So we're going to start with a Christian hermit who has a name, but I am only ever referring to him as the hermit in our summary. So I'm not okay. going to tell you what his name is. It's just going to be a mystery. Suck on that, listeners. Oh, I was okay. But it's a funny name. It is a funny name. <laughs> Do I have to keep it mysterious? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you have to hold on to it till later. <laughs> you can reveal it later. Make them work for it. Make them have to listen first. Okay, okay. That's a really funny name. Okay. Um, there's also King Aurelius. The... What? It's not that funny. It's not like his name is like Poop Man, <laughs> which would be a funny name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Stay, Sir Poop Man. <laughs> Where hast thou been, Sir Poop Man? God. <laughs> um, no, you're right. Nothing tops that. No, that's not this dude's name. Anyway, um, we also have King Aurelius, the king of Britain. And Prince Other, the king's brother. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you say it's... it that way so that it would rhyme? Well, I know, but also... How else would you say that? I guess Uther. Uther. Yeah. Like Uther Pendragon? Which is, in fact, who it is. Damn it. But Other's more fun to say. Yeah. No, that's why I thought you said it like that. I, I just, I went with, I was like, Uther? Other? I like Other better. And went on with my life. Okay. Uh, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> the audiobook I listened to called him Uther. Yeah. So. In, in the text, um, in very... some of the text, there's no H. So it's yeah. Uther. And I would have gone with very German. Um, So anyway, there's Austorius, a Saxon general. 
and Artesia, his sister. Mm-hmm. There's Edol, the British general. And Proximus, who's Astorius's magician. Mm. Uh, there's Joan, a pregnant woman. And Joan's brother, the clown. Mm-hmm. The fat clown, played by oh. William Rowley, apparently. Oh. Um, then, of course, there's Merlin, the titular mm-hmm. character. Mm. <laughs> and uh, Vortigern, who's the Welsh king. Mm-hmm. And then there's the devil, the literal devil, Lucifer himself. <laughs> well, not by so many words. They just yeah. they kind of allude to the fact that he's the devil or a devil, but he's the devil. Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Super fun. Yeah. All right, Jess, why should this play be so popular? Or not? Well, because it's completely and utterly batshit. And also it's bad. Um, so it definitely <laughs> actually shouldn't be all that popular and it's not so we all win today good work everyone go home early good job everybody take take a load off we've done our work um, yeah good job not making this play more popular than it needs yeah to be. Good job. i it's not good job. it's just it's it's look they're not all bangers right like they're there's they something like 572 uh surviving plays from this period from the english stage um and they're just like obviously <laughs> not all of them are gonna be great and this is one of the ones that isn't all that great like it's not like i'm not sorry that i've read it now twice um but also eh? <laughs> but again like English history play, which is super not my jam. So maybe there's someone out there who's super fucking fired up for Birth of Merlin. Oh, um, I know of at least 19 people who are super fired up for the Birth of Merlin, and that would be the current MFA company in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. Yeah, shout out to Treehouse Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> but they're like the only ones who I know yeah. of that are fired up for yeah. this play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't anyway. realize that I didn't realize that it was a history play. Like when I started uh, listening to, I, I for some reason I thought it was a comedy. I don't know because yeah. the title is so wild. Like yeah, I, I yeah. felt a little misled actually when it was yeah. like political machinations, and then right. I was like, oh, the alarums and tuckets. Yeah, like oh, so much statecraft and like mm-hmm. marriages for you know treaties and shit. I mean, it has, and we're, we're like, we're kind of skipping around, <laughs> but it has, it has all of the components for like a romance right. or a comedy yeah. or, you know, something that's not like boring English history play. Like the, one of my problems with this play is that I don't think this play really knows what it is or wants to yeah. be. Like it's yeah. trying to be English history, but I, I think the components aside from all of the like king shit mm-hmm. like all of the other pieces are comedy <laughs> yeah kind of like, does feel that way we've got Aside our from the, the deaths uh, which are mm-hmm. like footnotes yeah because none of them happen on stage question mark well there's that well we'll get to it in the summary i think there's a sort of death on stage with that i mean they with the rock okay sure uh, yeah okay so we've got <laughs> we've got one it. on stage death um which is hilarious it also. is it's so funny so, like, that it's was not, one of the laugh yeah. out loud moments yeah um <laughs> yeah it just okay so yeah. let's do the summary and then we can yeah. come back to yeah 
what the fuck the genre is. Yeah, you folks listening out there, listen to our summary and decide for yourself why, just maybe why people aren't fired up for this play. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll tickle your fancy. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we will now summarize the birth of Merlin for you in a segment that this week we're calling I'd Like to See Merlin's Paternity Test, Please. <laughs> Congratulations, you are the father. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, All right. Let's do it. Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit oh, shit shit. Uh I cut Donabert from the um um DP because I thought that I'd cut him from the summary, but here oh. he is in my second Let's sentence, see. third sentence. Uh Donabert is like a, a noble. He's like a dude. Yeah. And everything else that is important about him, I cut. So, okay. the end. Moving on. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, um, so the news from court is that there is, like, a reverend hermit, and he's arrived to meet the king. And the hermit is responsible for the king's army winning a battle against the Saxons without any loss of life. There's also concern over Prince Uther. Other's more fun. I'm just going to go with other. Okay. It's more fun. For me. You can say it however you want, but I'm going to say other. Also, okay. you can leave this whole thing in. I don't fucking care. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so there's also concern over Prince Other, who's the king's brother, and he <laughs> has disappeared, and that is why people are concerned. So then this guy, Donabert, comforts the king over his missing brother, saying that, like, surely, you know, they'd heard if he were dead or if he was captured, so there's no need to worry. He's just, like, out in the woods, like, living his life, whatever. Um, the Saxon general Ostorius sends his sister Artesia to meet King Aurelius and to negotiate a truce. Aurelius immediately falls in love with Artesia because of course he does. He also immediately proposes their marriage as a means of solidifying a truce because of course he does. Right. Aurelius's nobles are horrified by this because Artesia is one, a Saxon, and two, a pagan. Oh no. Then the hermit arrives and he chastises the king for his decision to marry Artesia and Artesia vows to get revenge. And then, then that's like basically the last thing we ever hear of her ever, basically, except for like one scene. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, okay. In act two, the clown is angry at his sister, AKA Joan. Go to it. <laughs> Their surname that is go is a to it. Funny name. That is not like is the, funny. the hermit's name, which is not funny at all. It's just and I unusual. Mean, either way you say it, like you can either say Joan go toot <laughs> or Joan go to it. And either way it's funny. Okay. But he's mad. The clown is mad at his sister because she's pregnant, like big time pregnant. And she doesn't know the father's name. She only knows what he looks like. Okay. Uh, tale as old as time. While yep. they're arguing in the woods, they come across Prince Uther waxing poetical about a beautiful woman he met. And the clown assumes that this must be the child's father. Clearly, Uther must be talking about Joan go to it. <laughs> Joan agrees that Uther, this person, must be the father of her child. Uh, but Uther is horrified by this and he denies he would ever stoop so low. And he beats her, you know, Rude. like you do. Right. Um, meanwhile, some nobles hear the commotion and they come over. They've been searching for Uther uh, and they find him and they take him home. Joan speaks to Oswald, one of these nobles, asking if it's actually him who's the father of her baby. And he's like, uh, no, I've never seen you before in my life. Um, the other noble is also quick to say he has seen her before, but he's not the father. Joan faints thinking that he is, um, but he's, he's not. So <laughs> every man she sees, basically she thinks is the father of her baby. Uh, it's a running joke throughout the play. 
Um, Edol, the British general, is furious that the king has married the sister of their enemy. So offstage, I guess, between Acts 1 and 2, they've just already gotten married. He demands to know why the nobles didn't kill her on sight. The Saxon general Astorius has his magician Proximus summon spirits to celebrate Aurelius's and Artesia's wedding. The spirits of Hector and Achilles fight. The hermit steps between the spirits and they fade away. And Proximus gets angry that the hermit's Christian faith is getting in the way of his magic. Uther arrives back at court only to discover that his new sister-in-law is the beautiful woman he was actually talking about and looking for in the woods. OMG drama. Like, of course there is. Of course there's a love triangle in this ridiculous play. After Artesia and Aurelius leave for their wedding night, Artesia sends Uther a jeweled crab, like a literal jeweled crab, like from Moana. Shiny. Which he takes to mean that Artesia wishes she could scuttle back and marry Uther instead of Aurelius. Next up, Joan and her brother arrive at court where they try to get literally every man they meet to admit to being the baby daddy. Yep. Finally, the literal, actual devil enters and Joan recognizes him as her lover. Mm -hmm. Um, The clown can't see the devil because supernatural. And he thinks that Joan has gone crazy. Off stage, Joan gives birth to a fully grown Merlin. And when she re-enters with this grown ass man with his head in the book... The clown is like super weirded out. He thinks Joan has I been would be. right. He thinks Joan has been bewitched and Merlin is a witch and then Merlin introduces the devil his father. The devil talks about how great Merlin is going to be and how everyone will know his name and he tells Merlin and Joan and the clown to go to Wales and live with the Welsh king Vortigern. The Saxon Ostorius prepares to leave for Wales and tells his magician Proximus to get revenge on the hermit. Artesia and other flirt and smooch but then Artesia calls for help so that other will get imprisoned and executed for hitting on her and other smells a rat and says he'll murder her Astorius enters to save his sister the British general Edel enters to protect the prince there's a quick scuffle before Aurelius demands order Artesia says that Uther conspired with the army to kidnap her and force her to marry him Aurelius pronounces all the Britons as traitors and asks Astorius to provide security. And then, like, that is sort of immediately resolved and never mentioned again. Uh, And everyone sets out for Wales and Vortigern. In Act 4, on the way to Wales, Merlin tells his uncle the clown that he has to go and serve King Vortigern to fulfill a prophecy that says his castle can never withstand invaders until his army is led by a child whose father was no mortal. The clown argues that this prophecy can't refer to Merlin because he was born fully grown and bearded and isn't a child. Uh, two Welsh gentlemen dispatched by Vortigern to find the prophesied child meet Merlin on the way. They take Merlin to Vortigern and Proximus, who gets all territorial about being the best magician, like, you know, male pissing contest. There it is. Yep. Uh, Merlin foretells Proximus's death and literally as Proximus is laughing about it, a rock falls on his head and kills him. It's very funny. And Merlin delivers this truly unparalleled zinger. I, so thou mayst die laughing. Boom. I mean, Roasted. sick burn, my dude. Right. Yeah. Merlin conjures dragons then to illustrate to Vortigern the coming of Aurelius and Uther and the battle that will lead to Vortigern's defeat. And also because apparently these dragons can live in a cave under the spot where Vortigern 
keeps uh, trying to build his castle, and that's the reason that it keeps being structurally unsound. Uh, the Welsh army meets the British army, and they fight, 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 fight. Vortigern narrowly escapes capture. A blazing star appears, and Merlin interprets it as a foretelling of Vortigern's death, and also Aurelius's death. Ooh. He claims Aurelius is already dead in his castle, poisoned by the Saxon newlywed wife, Artesia. The star also signifies Uther's great reign and long life and the great deeds of his descendants. Oh, we get where this is going. Okay, so Act 5 is super fucking short, thank God. The devil tries to get Joan to go to hell with him, but she's no longer like, ooh, devil, you're so sexy. Um, He calls spirits to drag her with him, but Merlin intervenes, proving that he's more powerful than the actual devil. Then he traps the devil inside a rock. Yep. <laughs> like like a bug or some shit I, uh, yep. yeah then he banishes joan to his magical forest home while she will live the rest of her life all alone and then when she dies merlin will erect a tomb for her um merlin leaves to go help king other in battle other wins captures artesia has her imprisoned in a tomb to starve to death and then merlin prophesies how uther's son king arthur Heard of him? Heard of that guy? King Arthur. Why, yes, yes, I have. Will have everlasting success and fame. Uh, the end. There's also a subplot where two sisters become nuns instead of getting married, but it is so fucking minor that I cut it from the summary entirely. Yeah. It's like it's like three scenes, legit. It's so short. No one cares. Yeah. Snore. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Smell you later. It doesn't really connect with anything else. Happening. No, it's got <laughs> nothing to do with anything. No. No, it's dumb. Although I will say, like, uh, the the um, monument that Merlin says he's going to build for his mother, Joan, mm-hmm. go to it, mm-hmm. is Stonehenge. It's fucking Stonehenge. Oh. <laughs> like, there are so many weird, like, English history Easter eggs in this. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to build Stonehenge for you. But he doesn't call it Stonehenge. He just says, I'm going to... Put some foreign rocks, big ones, in the Salisbury Plain, and it will be amazing. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's definitely Stonehenge. Cool. Cool, Merlin. Thanks, Good job. Good, yeah, good job, job, William Rowley. Yeah, good job. <laughs> Thanks, William Rowley. Shouting out some uh, pretty major English landmarks. Cool. Yeah. Cool, my dude. Um, yeah, which... <laughs> Which scene? Um, So that's your summary. It is now time for a taste of text. Um, In which we read a small but crucial scene from the play to give you a taste of its flavor. Although I might argue that almost no scene in this play is crucial. Yeah, I don't know why we we insist on saying that we're going to read crucial scenes. Because that's we just we look for short ones. Yeah. What do you want to do? Top of four one? Four one. Enter Clown Merlin in a little antic spirit. That part. I loved a little antic spirit. <laughs> a little. Little and antic. Um, yeah. Where do you want to start? Like right at the top of the scene? Yeah, like right at the top and go go to um, when Merlin starts talking in verse. Okay. Cool. Um, well, one of us is going to have to be two characters. <clears throat> I want to be the spirit. Okay. Great. I want to cool. use my little spirit voice. Okay, great. 
I'm a little spirit. Cool. Um, how about uh, I then? Do you want me to take Merlin and the clown? No, I mean that's a no, because yes, <laughs> no. The spirit barely talks. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, do you want to be clown Merlin. or Merlin? Okay. You be, Merlin. Merlin. be the clown. Yeah. Great. Right on. Okay. Okay. Here we do. Here we go. Act four, scene one. Enter clown Merlin and a little antic spirit. How now, uncle? Why do you search your pockets so? Do you miss anything? Ha! Cousin Merlin, I hope your beard does not overgrow your honesty. I pray, remember, you are made up of sister's thread. I am your mother's brother, whosoever was your father. Why, wherein can you task my duty, uncle? Yourself or your page it must be. I have kept no other company since your mother bound your head to my protectorship. I do feel a fault of one side— Either it was that Sparrowhawk or a cast of Merlins, for I find a covey of cardicues sprung out of my pocket. Why, do you want any money, uncle? Sira, had you any from him? Deny it not, for my pockets are witness against you. Yes, I had, to teach you better wit to look into it. Pray, use your fingers better, and my wit may serve as it is, sir. Well, restore it. There it is. Aye, there's some honesty in this. Twas a token from your invisible father, cousin, which I would not have to go invisibly from me again. Well, are you sure you have it now, uncle? Yes, and mean to keep it now from your page's filching fingers, too. If you have it so sure, pray show it me again. Yes, my little juggler, I dare show it. Ha! Cleanly conveyance again! Ye have no invisible fingers, have ye? Tis gone, certainly. Why, sir, I touched you not. Why, look you, uncle, I have it now. How ill do you look to it? Here, keep it safer. Ha! <laughs> this is fine, if faith. I must keep some other company if you have these sleights of hand. Come, come, uncle, tis all my art which shall not offend you, sir. Only I give you a taste of it to show you sport. Oh, but tis ill jesting with a man's pocket, though. But I am glad to see you cunning, cousin, for now I will warrant thee a living till thou diest. And then they go on and do a lot of talking, 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 talking. I just love a little antic spirit. A little <laughs> antic spirit. So yeah, that was a taste of the birth of Merlin. Yeah. That's uh, how it goes. It's more of that. <laughs> Jesus, it's a lot more of that. Yep. All right. Cool. Um. Yeah. Jess, talk. Let's talk about this text. Let's talk about authorship, baby. Ugh. Let's talk about William Rowley. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Mm. Let's talk about authorship, baby. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> Lead the way. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, it's probably Rowley. It's probably. It's probably Rowley. Um. It is, however, part of the Shakespeare Apocrypha, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, I will say that in listening to the play today, I heard a lot of like Shakespeare sounding little allusions, kind of like there there were little things that um, jumped out to my ear that were basically quotes from other Shakespeare plays like or little phrases that are more famous in other in Shakespeare plays. Um, and I was like, oh, this is fun and different. Is he just like shouting out Shakespeare? Is he just alluding, like pointing to Shakespeare plays? 
with these words. I don't know. Um, but I, I did hear them. There were, I could maybe like a half a dozen or so little moments like that where I was like, oh. So, but that does not mean by any means that Shakespeare helped write this play. No. <laughs> At all. It, just, it no. could just mean that William Rowley was a fan. Yeah. Um, okay. So what I was going to say was that I, I had had sort of a half memory that Birth of Merlin appeared in Shakespeare's third folio. It does not. Ah. So that half memory is no memory at all. And I completely <laughs> made it up. It it's was a, misleading. A fever dream. Um, okay. So this play, Birth of Merlin, or The Child Hath Found Its Father, which is its mm-hmm. subtitle, um, which they say twice in, in <clears> the way that like, yeah, in like that, that way that early modern plays often like to say their play title within the play, like measure right. still for measure and right. uh, look about you. And yes, they say that yeah. phrase a couple of times. Yep. Yeah. Um, so this play was first printed in Quarto in 1662 and the title page attributes the play to Shakespeare and Rowley. So that's where that comes from. Um, in 1662, they're probably just trying to capitalize on Shakespeare's popularity. Although, you know, 1662 is what right at the beginning of the restoration yes yeah yeah so it's you know there's 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 a lot going on in england and shakespeare is like the least of anyone's worries um this is also one of only two plays printed in the 17th century as a shakespeare collab the other one is two noble kinsmen which of course is a shakespeare collab um so most scholars today are like nah not Shakespeare it's not like nah um they do they're like yeah this is Rowley for sure for sure for sure maybe there is a collaborator in here um but it's not Shakespeare so who might it be well (laughs) Birth of Merlin um is really similar to a Bowfletch joint called Cupid's Revenge Mm. Um, the two plays share plot details like this missing prince and two related dudes who fall in love with the same woman. Um, they also share whole cloth, some of the same language and passages. Mm-hmm. Um, so some early scholars were like, oh, well, clearly this means that Bowfletch worked with Rowley on Birth of Merlin. Um, but modern scholars are like, nah, <laughs> There's there's no other marker of of their authorship in this play, so the the reason for the similarity is probably because both plays drew on common sources. Cupid's Revenge is probably the earlier play, and then Merlin's author or authors probably drew on it during their composition process. Um, it's not super interesting. There's frankly not a whole lot about this play that I find super interesting. Um, I have read Cupid's Revenge. I read it for my comps. Um, and I, my vague remembrance of it is that it's a better play, <laughs> but you know, both Fletch, they, that is I mean, not surprising. They, yeah. They knew what they, they were, were good. Doing. Yeah. 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 Um, and then also this has, you know, all of the Arthurian legend components, the dragons and the, Hey, King Arthur's going to be your son. And, and the Merlin stuff. And the Merlin. <laughs> the Merlin. The Merlin. The Merlin. The Merlin mm-hmm. of it all. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, as I was meant to, uh, clocked all of the Arthurian 
mm-hmm. references, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. This play like functions as like what I think what a modern audience might think of as like a prequel or like an origin story mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, because we see a lot of that in in modern TV and film. You know, like there's like an epic tale that everybody knows, and you're like, I want to know what came before it or what came after it, or like, what are some of the threads that link to it? So this this feels on one hand kind of like that, but it also feels like, um, and I was saying this off air, um, but I'll say it again because I think it bears repeating. It it has moments, big moments in Acts four and five where it feels like the end of Henry VIII, um, where it's like this like prophesying. Oh, like Lion King, Mount, you know, Mount Prophecy type of moment where it's like, these wonderful things will happen, not for you, but for this other guy and all of his progeny and therefore all of England and all the good things, Um, which for me is just boring. Um, I find that boring. I love Arthurian legend sometimes. Um... (laughs) You know, I mean, depends on who's telling it, I guess. But sure. uh, uh, yeah, so I, I like that stuff. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. That's neither here nor there. But um, so production wise, those are just my feelings. Now we'll get to like some meat and potatoes, I guess. This play is doing the most. Like so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I like to talk about, you know, oh, what's the buck basket scene of a play? And uh, for those who <laughs> just got here and don't know what I mean by that, um, buck basket is a reference to the Merry Wives of Windsor. There's just a complicated scene of like getting a big fat man, a Falstaff in a laundry basket and like hiding him in plain sight or whatever. So like it's a complicated scene, basically. Um, calling something a buck basket scene just means it's complicated to stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and most plays have like one or two moments like that that are difficult to stage. Birth of Merlin has like 12. It feels like so many huge moments. And my buck basket scene in the recording of this podcast today is my operatic feline on the other side of the door. He's just singing. He's just just singing the song of his people. Just wants everybody to know. Anyway... Um, yeah, this play has so many complicated moments to stage. Like, one, there are armies traversing back and forth several times. There are these moments of sometimes very funny violence, right? There's the rock on the head. Also, how you're going to stage the devil getting swallowed by a rock. Like, there's weird rock magic. Because I feel like there's, there's information in his diary mm. about the rock, but I don't recall correctly. And I can't look because it's in my office. Philip Henslow knew Dwayne the Rock Johnson? <laughs> no, wrong rock. Sorry. Um, yeah, so there's like, and there's also a mask. You know, there's like this Greek mythology ode to Achilles and Hercules mask type thing. And there's a dragon mask where like dragons are floating around in the air. La 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 la. Uh, you know, so there's like just, just so, and like just the magic and the spectacle. Um all over this play to try to stage. Yes. Henslow's diary accounts for one rock, one cage, one tomb, one hell mouth. Ooh. <laughs> so. Cool. Yeah. Don't just, know just, what that yeah, I, like. exactly. Did it look like Sunnydale, California? <laughs> couldn't tell you. Probably the vampire slayer type. Yeah. Oh. Those who know. 
<laughs> um, also, just so much casual misogyny. That's neither here nor there for like what to stage, but really how, how, how as a modern audience do we grapple with just this much, you know, not only is Jane go to Joan, go to it called a whore repeatedly, but basically every woman in the play at some point is called a whore or, um, you know, is treated badly or like the, the little subplot, of the two sisters who have suitors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of them doesn't want, she realizes she doesn't want to get married. She'd rather Modestia. become a nun. Modestia. Yes. Um, she, she, you know, is like grappling with that, even though she's got a suitor and is on like the brink of marriage. And she decides actually, actually, I think I want to become like a nun. I want to, you know, live a, um, an abstinent life of contemplation She's inspired by the hermit. Yeah. And everybody gets on her case and they're like, but don't you want to have children? Don't ch- aren't children. The only thing that bring meaning to your life. Fuck. Um, I know. Right. Yeah. So like, it's these horrible, um, horrible arguments that persist even now um, for, you know, those of us who don't want to have children. Um, yeah. I just, you know, what what happens to this play, I guess, is my question. If you tried to cut out all of the misogyny, I'm not sure you'd have much of a script left, frankly. Um, you know, and of course, Artesia is the femme fatale, the seductive, evil, and pagan Saxon. Uh, you know, the insatiate Saxon. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's just troubling stuff in, in that text. And, like, there's a, you know, the question now, like... You know, when you come up against problematic stuff, do you cut it or do you grapple with it and make something of it? Um, yeah. This one gives you a lot of that and a lot of options to make whatever choice you're going to make. But there's there's a fucking lot of it. This play does not like women. Let's um let's revisit our before the summary conversation about like genre bullshit mm, and like yeah. what the fuck this play is. Sure. Because I, so I. I read it in two sittings. So I I read it for comps years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read it. I read Acts 1 through 3 on Friday and 4 and 5 this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like clocked in Act 1. Like, oh, okay, this is English history. Like, sure. You know, we've got we've got the, the Welsh and the Saxons and the Britons. And oh, the, yeah. You know, it's. it's Let's okay. make fun of the Welsh. Yeah. It's a fun, like, fun trope. God, yeah. love it. Love it. Just yeah. ugh, this fucking Welsh, right? Ugh. Um, so like, you know, I, I had, I clocked all of that and then it changes, right? Like we, in, we, we move sort of from like the political machinations to, you know, the, the battles and the, you know, the drama intrigue of like marrying someone who your government doesn't want you to marry. And then like, also the hermit is sort of like set up as like gonna be a huge part of the play and is not um and then we immediately felt like a medieval morality play yes yeah 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 but then like so we we in act one we get we get a sharp like 180 from like the court to the woods and joan go toot and her (laughs) baby daddy and the devil and like it's and like that shit is like straight out of a comedy. 
Yeah. Like and completely. Old morality plays. Also, yes. Yeah. But like you know? But there's, you know, there's nothing until the very end, like literally the last like hundred lines of the play when Merlin is like, oh, hey, mom, I'm going to banish you to my magical woodland cave place. And then you're going to live there forever by yourself. And then you're going to die. And then I'm going to create Stonehenge. Like until that, there's no like real sort of authorial passing judgment on Joan. Like, yeah, the the clown calls her a whore and shit, but like aside from that it's not like she's there's there we're not as a as readers or an audience we're not being set up for like oh clearly she's bad and has done bad things and right. is gonna you know come to harm and evil and die and whatever like even even right. once we learn that like her baby daddy is the literal devil like <laughs> she's still not like super vilified right it's a very strange play. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's fucking weird. And it does. It has these moments of like, which is why it felt maybe all of these things combined maybe is why it felt to me like um, almost like William Rowley was like writing a prequel for mm-hmm. for what? I don't know. For, <laughs> <laughs> England. I don't, I don't, Just England. England generally. I don't know. I was like, is he is he trying to kiss up to James right now? Like what? Mm. I don't know, but, but maybe that, because like the, the, the mask and the prophecies with the dragons and the, all that stuff for Vortigern is to prophesy like the English subjugating the Welsh, right? Mm-hmm. And la-di-da, aren't we so proud of that? Like that's a big milestone in English history. Um, and then like the- Not one to be proud of. It's not one to be proud of. It's not, I'm not saying it is. I'm just yeah. saying like- you know, uh, but this is like, this is alluded to as sort of a big moment in this play and is part of a big prophecy, like this huge sweeping prophecy that Merlin makes, right? Um, and he goes on to say, I'm going to build Stonehenge for my whore of a mother. And, you know, that's why Stonehenge is in the Salisbury Plain. And, you know, that's how it ended up there. And all this shit that's going to happen at Winchester Castle, which was like apparently the OG Camelot. Like that's where people think, you know, Camelot actually was, was, was Winchester Castle, I think. Um, and and so like he's making all of these allusions to like British history and but also British mythology mm-hmm. um, and how those things came to be and like they're all just wrapped up in a messy play called the birth of Merlin and like Merlin and but it's also Greek because he like springs from his mother full grown mm-hmm. and bearded like a like Gandalf the Grey I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> like everyone makes you know talks about like his big long gray beard. So like I don't I don't know yeah it just feels like it William Rowley was doing the most just yeah. all the way through this play he was doing the most and and it feels like state propaganda like just the worst kind of oh this is our mythological and happy happy history I don't know you know what is striking me right now as I'm as we're sitting here talking about it is that for as prolific as the English stage was and for as dominating as the Arthurian legend is there are not that many plays that deal with any aspect of King Arthur and doesn't that feel like it is the perfect material for a play on the English stage like Mm -hmm. Yeah. What what were y'all doing 
y'all. Like, there's mm-hmm. this, um, you know, Green wrote one. Some guy called Thomas Hughes wrote one. Middleton has one. Um, ben Johnson has, I think, like a mask. Uh, but like, there's like him. yeah, there's just there's not there's not what like why were you sleeping on Arthur? Early modern English stage. I mean, maybe because one, I don't think, I'm not sure you can, was he real? Like, that's the thing that, like, was Uther Pendragon real? Or are these, these like, people of legend and, and part of, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you, can you trace an actual King Arthur to any of the current or then current, you know, 1620s, whenever this play was maybe performed? Yeah, no. Um, Apparently not. British British monarchy, right? Yeah. Um, so if you can't trace someone like that as a direct ancestor to flatter your monarch, then sure. why bother? Um, I mean, because it's a cool story. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Excalibur and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, is why it persists in British mythology now. Right? And also, <laughs> like, this is this is a digression. <laughs> We love a digression. Welcome, Welcome to the to show. The really, really Shakespeare <laughs> yeah. show. Um, but like the new king of England, which still sounds so fucking weird to say because like England is always ruled by women. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> like could have chosen Arthur as his regnal name because it's one of his names. Oh, and then like that. yeah, like chose to go with Charles because like. I guess, you know, there there is precedent, right? Victoria, that was... Actually, her name was Alexandrina. Um, but, like, her, his mother, right, Elizabeth, was like, my name is Elizabeth, you're gonna call me Elizabeth. End yeah. of story. So, like, precedent. Yeah. But if you know, like, if you know, if you spend 73 years of your life waiting for your mother to die, and she is not universally beloved, because that's not how the monarchy is but like enjoyed some popularity and you don't because you cheated on Diana and like also you just kind of seem like you're an asshole I feel like I would have been like here's a thing that I can do to make my brand cooler is I can be King Arthur a classic (laughs) rebranding right it's a real missed opportunity yeah absolutely I'm saying I'm saying um, I don't know that there has ever been uh, a King Arthur in English history. King Arthur. I mean, the the ones who died, right? Like there was oh, Henry yeah, yeah, VIII's yeah. brother. But who, he was never who, king. Right, right. Um, he was set to inherit the throne and then he yeah. died. Uh, and and the other King Arthur, the one in King John's play, that were, you know, it sort of had a claim to the throne, but again, was not crowned, right? There have been some like runner up Arthurs <laughs> like that. Right. Um, yeah, so like I'm not sure which threads, if any, of the Arthurian legend are more than legend and actual lineage, right? Um, and linked to real folks. Like, was Camelot a real thing, or was it just mm-hmm. a made-up story like George Washington's cherry tree? Like, I don't know. Right. You know. Um, oh, like, I love a good Arthurian legend, but I am by no means an expert in it, so I have no idea. Yeah, I don't, I don't know jack about it. So I, I have just Googled the list of English kings. 
Um, and can we just talk about these Saxon kings and their stupid names? Can please, we, please do. For a second? Let's. Yes. Okay. We, yes. So eight thirty nine to eight fifty eight is Ethelwolf. Yep. Who is followed by Ethelbald? Uh-huh. Who's followed by Ethelbert? Yep. <laughs> who's followed by Ethelred? Yeah. And then finally, we we get rid of an Ethel and we get Alfred the Great in eight seventy one. Oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. we have uh, his son Edward the Elder, and then we go back to Ethel and we have Ethelstan. So many. <laughs> and then we get Edred and Ethel. <laughs> Edred, Edwig. Uh-huh. Edgar, Edward the Martyr, mm. Ethelred II the Unready. <laughs> <laughs> unready for the monarchy or just like unready generally? He's just like um, always see. surprised by stuff. So Ethelred II the Unready, 978 to 1016. Ethelred okay. was unable to organize resistance against the Danes, earning him the nickname Unready or Badly Advised. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, although in Couldn't his defense... Defend against those uh, Vikings. Got yeah. It. In, in his defense, he became king when he was 10. So... Okay. Well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Poor kid. <laughs> Poor um, Ethel. Yeah. We also have, you know, the legendary Canute, because that's a silly name also in 1016. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Hartha Canute comes later in 1040. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, we get the Norman Conquest and then we get like some not normal names because normal is relative, but sure. names that still sound common today, like Henry and Stephen and William and right. Richard and yeah. John and so on. Yeah. There the does not appear. Now. Yeah, yeah. There does not appear to ever have been any. Uh, King Arthur. Yeah. Or an Uther. Is there... Nope. See, yeah, I didn't think nope. so. And it can, it sounds kind of Saxon-ish. Yeah. But, like, it's, you know... Um, yeah. So so maybe that's why uh, not too many playwrights took it up or not, you know, more of them didn't yeah. take it on as subject matter. I don't know. Um, yeah. Charles Philip Arthur George. Pick Arthur, man. <laughs> it's right there. It's your third name. Thank you for um, indulging in that digression. What happens now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Close that tab, go back to the outline. (laughs) Yeah, uh, now, I mean, it's time to gossip unless we have more things to say about this play. It's not good. If you want to read it, read it. I mean, I think I maybe I'd like to see it, but I don't, I don't, I don't, but it's bad. I, (laughs) I very much want to see what, the what the MFA students do with it because this is their Ren show so this is the show right. that they're going to put together in a week with no director sometime in the early spring I suppose um, of 23 so like I will definitely be there if, if you you know since we're talking gossip anyway folks if you're around the Stanton Virginia area the Shenandoah Valley area in you know I don't know when their go date is for it probably sometime in January or February uh-huh. but um, you will have a chance to see the birth of Merlin which perhaps hasn't been on stage in a very long time. It has been done once in the modern era. Oh. Yeah. But I forget by who or when or where. Cool. (laughs) We're so good at this job. I mean, (laughs) it didn't seem relevant to put into into the the. It's not uh, really, because it proves your point that, like, if you can name one instance, maybe, when it's happened within, what, the last century... Yeah, like that. This play is not very popular. 
Um, so anyway, um, you can you can see it, and I'm, I am curious to see what they make of it and how they deal with those many, many buck basket challenges. Um, oh, wait, maybe I'm making this up. Maybe it hasn't been revived. Oh, no. Uh, it has been revived by Theater Clued, maybe, in Wales. Oh, in, interesting. Yeah, it's it's near Mould in northeast Wales. Huh. All right. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't say when. Okay, moving on. Gossip, gossip. So th- there's unsubstantiated drama at Orlando Ooh. Shakes. Okay. Um, and I, I say that only because I, I've seen exactly two tweets about it on Twitter um, and can't can't confirm it outside anyway okay um so this morning i woke up uh and saw a tweet from a playwright whose name i believe is hala roshan it's it's uh iranian and so my pronunciation might be bad and also that's just their twitter handle so it might not even be their real name so the this person uh tweeted that so they they had written a play about the history of the Iranian revolution and how it affected women of various classes differently but ultimately created a global diaspora of Iranian solidarity and that is just reading that tweet wholesale and apparently uh in this play um one of the casting requirements and one of the one of the like requirements of the script is a farsi speaking actor mm-hmm. um and Orlando Shakes you know, got the rights, is putting up the play, um, and then offered the role, that role, the to the the Farsi speaking role, um, to someone who doesn't speak Farsi, didn't tell the playwright, didn't tell the director, um, and was not willing to rectify this. Uh, so the playwright pulled the rights. Like Shakespeare's dead and that's in the public domain. So do whatever the fuck you want with Shakespeare, but like living playwrights. Right. You got to do, you have to do what they say. <laughs> yeah. That's, or talk to them if you're yeah, very intentionally yeah. going to try to not do what they say. Right. And then open up that conversation. Yeah. That's the whole point. And like, if you were, if you were a land of shakes and you were making the argument that, you know, um, you didn't need, uh, an actor who could speak Farsi for noises off, like that's one conversation. Right. But this is literally a play about the Iranian revolution. So maybe right. you, you do need someone who can speak Farsi. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, haven't been able to confirm that this is actually a thing. Uh, like, I don't even know what the play's name is. Um, there's there is no information uh mm-hmm. on the Orlando Shakes website like it it apparently has already been scrubbed from all of their material you know maybe it'll pop up in nothing for the group this week and we yeah. can confirm yeah well hmm yeah yeah that's not, that, that's not yeah. great it's not not a good look uh Orlando Shakes not a good look um well in other news hopefully not as controversial uh folks if you like Dr. Faustus and if you like Lazarus Theater in the UK, you can live stream the performance of it on October 6th. So that'll be this episode will air like right before that. Um, so there will still be time. Um, 
to do that. Tickets are £10 if you're in the UK, which is, I think, right now, the exchange rate, 13-ish dollars. God, is um, that all? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but yeah, so Dr. Faustus, Lazarus Theatre. I've seen the ads for it. It looks, like, edgy and cool. Um, so if you want a streamed, if you want to watch a streamed performance of that, you can. Um, if you want to see some live theater, it's just shameless plug for the American Shakespeare Center. The Tempest and Pericles, uh, as of the airing of this episode, will have just opened. Uh, it's the return of the actor's renaissance season, um, but we're putting it in the fall. Ooh. Um, so these two shows are produced by the actors uh, without a director uh, in about two weeks. Um, they're doing great performances. I particularly am enjoying our uh, Caliban and Ariel and what they have decided to do with those characters, um, which I think is fucking rad. And that's all I will say. I will pique your interest. Uh, those shows are going to run through November 20th. Uh, and then we're going to open up um, Amy Césaire's Un Tempet, which is uh, 1969, you know, post-colonial version of The Tempest. Uh, and that opens October 28th. So that's our fall season. It's what little gossip I've got. You should come and see the shows. Um, to circle back to what I was just talking about, I believe the play in question is called Our Mother's The Ghost Story. Orlando Weekly, which uh, looks to be, you know, some kind of like art and culture newsletter situation, um, lists Our Mother's The Ghost Story as being part of Playfest. 2022 okay with orlando shakes um and it looks like it's a, it was perhaps uh one night only in november so i just i didn't dig through their website quite well enough it is still listed um mm. but yeah it's it's a one night only kind of thing we'll see if if any anything else um comes up um yeah okay i think that's it <laughs> i think that brings us to the end <laughs> okay cool um, well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah, tune in next time um, for our very first non-English play. Yeah. Uh, we're we're taking on Spanish Golden Age with Fuente Ovahuna. Yes, Sheep Fountain. Woohoo! <laughs> what? Fuente Ovahuna means sheep fountain. Ovahuna is sheep. Fuente is fountain. Font. Fountain. Fountain of sheep. Yeah. Sheep fountain. Well, there's nothing about a sheep fountain in the play. So Weird. that's disappointing. Weird that that is its name. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like the name of a town. But right. They, yeah, yeah, they don't they don't make a... There's, there's no, like, parades of sheep or fountain or anything. Damn. Yeah. I mean, missed opportunity. Uh, Wham let out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at Hurley Burley Shake, no S, 
on Twitter. The land on which I live and work, colonially known as Stanton, Virginia, is the unceded territory of the Monacan Confederation of Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. The traditional custodians of the land on which I live are the Lenape Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Learn about where you live at native-land.ca. Get involved at ndncollective.org and find out more about the Land Back campaign at landback.org. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We didn't tell them the name of the hermit ever. I'm going to do it because Aubrey's just, she she stopped recording, but I am still recording. Uh, the hermit's name is Anselm. It's not that funny. Oh, I don't know who the fuck Nicodemus is. I never met him. Oh, Sir Nicodemus Nothing, a courtier. Nicodemus Nothing is a hilarious name, to be to be fair, but it is not it is not the name of the hermit. His his name is Anselm, or Sir Poop. <laughs>